is that your brain? Your heart? Sometimes it feels like that, doesn't it? If you're going to travel to Canada, you might want to make a part of your trip stopping by uh, Thunderdome. It's an amusement park in Canada. And when you go to Thunderdome, you can go to one of their sites called the Rage Room. Check it out on their website. For about 20 bucks, you can go into into the Rage Room and you can smash stuff. They'll give you a sledgehammer and pipes, and you can, you can destroy things. You could even take your own box of stuff and uh, mash your own, smash your own stuff. They say uh, those who are particularly interested in it are desk, those who have desk jobs. They love smashing printers. <laughs> well, that's one way to deal with your anger and your rage. But uh, God has a better way. We're in Psalm 137 today. In the last uh, several weeks, in this month of July, we've been dealing with the subject inside out. It's been about what do we do with these emotions that we have within us? How do we work through them in a way that is healthy and that leads us to a, a more godly life? Now, We don't have time to do all the emotions, but I hope these five weeks you have enough tools now to know how to take the Psalms and other scriptures and work through the kinds of emotions that often can be damaging to us, but God wants to use them for our good to shape us more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. When we come to him, it's not about simply a behavioral change that happens. What Jesus is doing in us by his spirit is transforming our hearts. And as our hearts are transformed, then our behavior is changed. So you can change your behavior, but it's short-lived. But our hearts, if our hearts don't change, you know, then we're still not being yielded to Jesus Christ. So here's the psalm, Psalm 137. <clears throat> by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There in the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. It'd be time for a good gasp right now. We don't expect the Psalms to close this way, do we? The Psalms are supposed to close close soothing us and calming us. We find refreshment for our souls. It's not supposed to be smashing babies against the wall. But that's how this one closes. These are disturbing words. And yet God uses the disturbing words in a positive way to help us. Now, as always, whenever we study the Scripture, if you don't start with understanding the context, 
you're going to go awry. So many verses, so many passages in the Bible are misapplied in our present day because we don't understand the context in which they're written. The context is hundreds of years before Christ, and big nation, Babylon, is seizing upon little nation, Israel, and its capital city, Jerusalem. They're laying siege to the city, and they're going to come in. And when they come in, they're going to wreak havoc. They're going to, the soldiers are come, came in, and they, they pillaged the city. They looted the city. They killed. They burned. And they took captive the cream of the crop of Israel. 900 miles away, they took them to Babylon, their homeland. They retrained them. They reeducated them. And they were away for a, for a long time. And so Psalm 137 is an eyewitness account. It's written by someone who has seen these things, these atrocities. And the pain is searing. It is difficult to deal with the anger that he feels in the sacking of the city. And in that occasion, there are two things that he has a hard time shaking. One is the mockery of the nation of Edom, another another uh, enemy nation of Israel. And on that day when Babylon finally did their dastardly work, you know, they were yelling, tear it down, Babylon, tear down Jerusalem. And that memory haunts the psalmist. Not only that, but some of these soldiers were seen to come in and take little ones out of the arms of their mothers and gash their heads against the stone wall of the city and killing them. Imagine, imagine the grief and the wailing of that occasion. Horrendous acts. He's working through his anger. And we need to do the same. We live in a world that's an angry world today. I don't know that any of us have ever known a nation angrier than it is now. You don't have to be on Facebook long or on Twitter long before you see statements of people expressing anger. You look at the front page of the Indianapolis Star, USA Today. You listen to the news. If you can put up with all of that, and you are just bombarded with messages from an angry society and angry culture. Not only that, but even in your life and mine, we have people that oppose us. We have people that say hurtful things to us and about us. Families have been wrecked apart because of anger, a seething anger, a slow-burning anger. It's real, isn't it? That's where we are. What do we do with this? Well, the psalmist helps us these three things. Keep in mind, first of all, he owns his anger. He owns his anger. Look again. Let's look again at verses 1 through 5. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars, we hung our harps, for there our captors ask us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of those songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. You can hear the captors, and they are taunting the exiles. They're making fun of the high claims of God's people, the source of truth. But the nation of Israel was to be a light to the Gentile nations. They were an unusual nation because they worshiped and served the only one true living God. All the other nations 
were polytheists. They had many, many gods they worshipped. This idea of one god was silly to them. They would exclaim about the works of their god. Now, now sing about your faithful God, Israelite people. Hey, you Hebrews digging the ditches over there. Now let's sing. Let's hear you sing about how majestic your God is. Hey, those of you who are slaves, how about, how about now you sing one of those songs about how you know the truth and nobody else does? Can you hear the angst within the hearts of the Hebrew people? The psalmist is saying, I remember And I have a hard time dealing with my anger through all this. For you and me, the tempter is always at work. And through all the seasons of our life, through all the hardships of our life, through the bad health reports, through reports, through the the bankruptcies or financial challenges, through our family uh, hurts and pains and divorce and abuse and all that happens, the tempter whispers to us, how about going to church today? Go ahead and go to worship your God today. You think he knows what you're up to, up, up against? Do you think he really loves you when he's allowing you to go through all this? Do you really think he hears you when you pray? How about singing a song now about trust and obey? Uh, how about singing about his majesty today? He's got the whole world in his hands. You think he has you in his hands? That's how the tempter works, isn't it? He whispers to us teases us. We are a society about getting in touch with your feelings. Well, boy, is a psalmist ever getting in touch with his honest, with with his feelings. Talk about being honest. We we can hardly take this anger we see here. A couple of weeks ago when Luke was preaching, he mentioned that in children's books, remember, uh, they never write about Goliath's head being cut off. You know, they leave that gory part out. Not the psalmist here. Remember, these are songs. And kids are hearing their parents sing this in some kind of worship setting about kids' heads on the wall being bashed in. It's a tough song. Because we belong to Jesus, sometimes we fear admitting our anger because it doesn't seem very Jesus-like. It doesn't seem very virtuous to say, in fact, we'll say, well, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. I'm not angry, I'm just hurt. I'm not angry, angry, I just don't understand. And all of it comes under the same category of anger. So don't deny it. If you deny it, you know, we have it all wrong. Ephesians 4.26 says, in your anger, do not sin. So there it's, it's saying, we will be angry. Just don't sin in your anger. Jesus blasts the Pharisees in Mark 3, 5. Hebrews 12, 15 says, See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, let's change that a little bit because I want you to read it with me. I'll read it like this and then you're going to read it with me. See to it that I, see to it that I, do not fall short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause, to cause uh, me, no, I'm sorry, to cause, cause trouble and defile me. Let me say it again. See to it 
that I do not fall short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile me. Say that with me. See to it that I do not fall short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile me. Now, if you know you're an angry person today, that you live in a slow burn, I suggest you pray that every morning this week. Make that a part of your daily routine. Fifty years ago, 60 years ago or so, industrialists had no idea about what toxic waste was doing. It was working its way into our water table, into our waterways, wreaking havoc on crops, creating illnesses, doing all kinds of dastardly work in our health conditions. It was out of ignorance, uh, perhaps out of apathy. I don't know. When we do not, when we allow a bitter root to take hold of us, to our hearts, it works into our whole emotional system. And when that tox, tox, and those toxins that come out of a bitter root move throughout, throughout us, it affects our relationships with our families, our work relationships, how we drive, we treat people wrongly in business. It affects our relationship with God. Everything is damaged when we hold on to anger rather than working through it. You see, everything about the kingdom of darkness and the prince of this world is about the undoing of the reality of God. That's what Satan is up to. He wants to somehow destroy the reality of the living God who is king of the world and king of the universe. He wants to undo him and usurp his authority. And he wants you to do that as well. And so God wants community, but Satan fragments. God wants peace, but Satan prompts conflict. God wants life, but we face death all day long. God desires wholeness, but Satan turns health into injury. So the Bible says it's always wrong to deny your anger. But I also want to say that it's also wrong to be unable or to be unwilling to be angry. Because we are called to be angry at times about the condition of the world and the injustices that we see. This man owns his anger, and we do well to do the same. But notice also, what in this psalm, what he's actually doing is he prays his anger. He doesn't stuff his anger. He doesn't dump his anger. Our usual problem is we allow anger to develop in us, and what happens, it leads to hatred. We hate people who have somehow wronged us or exercised injustice toward us. And then what happens well, the last thing we want to do is pray because we, well, I shouldn't be praying because I have hatred in my heart. But that's not what the psalmist does. In spite of how he feels about Babylon, in spite of all the memories he has, he takes his anger and his hatred and he brings us to God. He processes it in the presence of God. Now, I remember a lady I was counseling probably 15 years ago uh, not around here. She wasn't even a member here, I don't think. But anyway, she came in several times. 
And one time she came in and she said, oh, I, I, she was seeing a professional counselor. I've learned in time, with, 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 in time and wisdom uh, to pass on people to professionals because most, most issues are, are so deep and I'm not trained as a professional to do that. I can be a good listener. I can give some, some, some brief counsel and, and insights but so many people have complicated situations, and she did, and she also saw a professional counselor. But this particular day, she came in and said, yeah, I told my counselor this week that the only reason he counseled people and wrote his book was because he wanted money, that you said that. That's what you thought about it. I said, what? I said, did I ever say that? No. Well, why did you say that to him? He said, I don't know why I said it. I said, you lied to him about me? I was so angry. And she had the audacity to say at the end of our time, can we pray? I said, no, we can't pray. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to do was pray. And as the week went on, I realized, you know, that my, my hatred toward what she had done was, was just working in me, and I, I had to work it out in the presence of God. Have you ever been so angry at somebody you couldn't pray? That's the last thing you should be doing. No matter what the anger does, you take it to the presence of God. That's what he does. Anger is real. And so is God when we worship. What we're doing here in the assembly, when we come together, or when you're in your life group and you're in Scripture together, you are bringing in the world situation and our fallenness in all its colors, all its drabness, and we're bringing that reality together with the reality of God. And we're working all this out in his presence. That's what we're doing when we're worshiping, when we're around the Lord's table, when we are admitting and confessing our need for him because we want to emerge knowing that the reality of God trumps every other reality. He's the one that grants us victory through all of this. But there's a third thing, and that is he limits his anger. Now, you may not think so. Um... He doesn't say, you know, I swear before God uh, over my grave that you're going to get yours before I die. You know, there, there, there's no suggestion, Lord, give me the strength. I want to blow their brains out. <laughs> you know, there, 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 that's really not there. When you first read it, you may think that's what he's saying, but he's not saying that. This is how he limits his anger. You notice in the psalm, he says, remember me, O Lord. Remember, O Lord. Remember, O Lord. Now, in the Hebrew language, when you have that word remember, it's not necessarily like we use the word remember. When we use the word remember, we are recalling. We are recollecting. That's not what this remember means. This remember means action. So, after, after God gives Abraham a covenant that by his seed all the nations of the world are going to be blessed, you know, Abraham waits. And he says years later, I, I'm, I will remember my covenant to you. It's not God saying, 
You know, Abraham, I got up today, and I realized 25 years ago, I told you I was going to get you a kid. Dumb me, I forgot. The world's been busy. I've been busy. I forgot about the kid. So now it's 25 years later. Now Sarah's going to get pregnant and have a baby. That's not, what he, that's not what he says when he says, I remember, I'm remembering the covenant. He's just saying, it's time for me to act. Now I'm bringing it to pass. And that's what the psalmist means here. He's saying, God, on my behalf, will you act? Will you you do something about this? In other words, he's putting all of it in the hands of God. He's letting God take care of it. Um, This psalm has, has sort of a shadow of a courtroom because you have the swearing in. He says, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, May my right hand forget. Now, my skill be taken away. He's, he's, he's pledging his loyalty to God's capital city, which means his people. And then, then you have the evidence where I already talked about the, the Edomites and their mocking uh, Israel and the Babylonians come in and, and, and the dashing of the little ones against the walls of the city. And then we have the sentence which is he's saying, God, it seems like they should have the same kind of suffering that we've had. But he leaves it with God. He doesn't ask God necessarily to do it. It just seems like, God, this is an injustice that you should be taking care of. And so he's limiting his anger, knowing God is the perfect one to deal with it. It means that when we go to take our anger before in the presence of God, we're trusting him to, to exercise perfectly what needs to be done. Why? Because he's the only one who has the power to exercise judgment. He's the only one that has the power to do it. You're, you're not given that power. I'm not given that power. It's not mine to have and to exercise. Second, he has the knowledge to exercise judgment. He sees and understands what we don't. He understands all the different facets of what's going on. Remember, in biblical history, it was God who raised up the Babylonians to bring judgment on his own people because they had been so unfaithful to him and they wouldn't repent. So God says, okay, I'm going to raise up a people and they're going to bring judgment But he never forgot what he ultimately was doing, bringing his Messiah into the world. And only God has the right to exercise judgment. The Bible says clearly, all the earth is his and everything in it. You are simply, I am simply a a, a fruit of his creation. It's all his, right? Would you say amen to those three things? Now, when you come back to those things, you're able to rest in him. Hundreds of years later, Luke tells us what happens five years, five days before Jesus, our Savior, was crucified. He records, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will but come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you 
and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you. There's a shadow, a reflection of Psalm 137. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. And later, when the Roman general Titus besieged Jerusalem again, not only did they take babies from the mother's wombs, but Josephus records that they cut infants out of mother's wombs. And Jesus warns about that day in Matthew chapter 24. He says, pray it's not in winter. Jesus weeps because he knows what they don't know, that Jerusalem is going to be sacked again. The Romans are going to come in and destroy the city again. And so he looks at this city. This city is about to reject God's God's Messiah. They are about to kill him. And when Jesus looks at the city in Jerusalem on that triumphal entry day, he does say, ha, ha. You're going to get yours in 70 A.D. Doesn't say it. He weeps and just says, if only you knew. If only you knew. So on the cross, five days later, he would look at his crucifiers and mockers and simply pray, Father, forgive them. How do you explain this change? Does, that, does Jesus not care about injustice? Doesn't he, doesn't he get angry at, at the conditions of life in this world, at people who rage against him? Does he get angry? Is he, not, is he less concerned about all the injustices done than, than the psalmist? Not at all. But he did something about it. You see, all the injustice... For all time, he took up on himself. All the punishment a person deserves because of whatever grief or pain they cause somebody else, Jesus took on himself. The woman who gossiped about you, the father who abused you, the mother who never nurtured you, the boss who took advantage of you, you know, the the teacher who mocked you, or the ex who slanders you, the guy who embezzled money from you. Everything anybody ever did against you, Jesus, Jesus answered our, somebody ought to pay for this, and he did. Jesus himself paid for every injustice done against you. And any injustice you incurred on anyone else. God's little one was dashed against the wall of eternity 2,000 years ago. So that when you were treated so unjustly, there's someone to run to. God absorbed your pain, He absorbed the price. Let that grip your heart. Let that that message ring throughout your whole being 
1966, before I even know I knew I needed it, George Klusterhaus invented whiteout. <laughs> you remember? Sure we do. Those early days of typing, you know, and then we'd get that little brush out and we'd for that? And then the electric typewriter came. Remember that? When you got your first electric typewriter and you got, you got self-correcting tape. Boy, was that fun. Back up, hit that letter again and go on. Wouldn't it be nice to have self-correcting people? I'd like to be a self-correcting person. Oh, you're just like your mother. Oops, backspace, 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 backspace. <laughs> Friends, none of us are self-correcting. That's why God looked at us in a heart for us. When we were still rebels, he looked at us and he wept over us because we were like sheep without a shepherd. Will you let the cross of Christ permeate your heart and mind. I need to do that myself and my issues. Let the cross of Christ embrace you, envelop you, permeate you, realizing somebody paid the price and you and I get to pay it forward.